Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. Thanks a lot to my friends at Sastrify for sponsoring this episode. A lot of CTOs I know are responsible for procurement of software as a service by accident and never have the time and energy to work on optimizing their costs. For example, at my company OMR, we have a lot of tools. G Suite, Adobe Creative Cloud, New Relic and many, many more. Sastrify helps companies like ours to optimize the costs and negotiate with suppliers of such software. In our case, they helped us to save around 20k per year, which is a lot if you look at our company size of around 150 people. It is a simple and hassle-free process we went through, and I can just recommend anyone listening to do the same. They actually promise to save more money than they cost. They are already working with a lot of AlphaList members, such as Runtastic, West Wing, or Emma. To get started using their services, please visit sastrify.com slash AlphaList. Just check the show notes to get the link. You'll get a 50% discount for the first three months in addition. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby, and my topic for today is AI and machine learning in 2021. And my guest today is Rasmus, and he's the founder of Merantix, a Berlin-based AI company builder. And he's basically one of the key people uh, who is pushing for a large AI ecosystem in Germany. So one could call him the AI Oracle. Um, and... Uh, As a co-founder of the German Federal Association um, for AI, he helps to educate people in politics and really push the scene. Rasmus, can you tell us tell us a bit more about your your um, your idea? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for the introduction and and the invitation to the podcast. Very excited to be here. Um, yeah. My 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 main job is is Merantix. We are we're a venture studio building AI first companies. So the way it works is we have very talented founders and residents with us. They work with us for six to 12 months. We test and validate a lot of business cases, both commercially and technically. And when there's something we're excited about, then we incubate that as a company and also fund it as an investor. And yeah, we've been building a few AI companies in the last couple of years and very excited also about what we plan to build in the next couple of years. And, and you just said that you also have an AI campus with, I don't know, 500 people working there? Yeah, exactly. We this this idea started actually just before COVID. Um, we always had all our companies co-located because we believe that there is a lot of value in in this exchange of you know learning from each other, helping each other, and that's the easiest when you use the same coffee machine. And so we said, okay, look, when, if we anyways have to look for a new office, why don't we make this a bit larger um, and also bring other companies that work on AI to the same spot? And so that's when the AI campus idea was born. And yeah, fast forward. Um, in April, we opened it up. Um, it's already like three quarters occupied at this point. So despite COVID, a lot of interest in, in moving on a campus. And yeah, it's a it's a very cool space. And there's a lot of there's already a lot of like collaborations getting started, um, and business being generated on the campus. And yeah, it's also just a really nice place to work from. And you just said that it's not really commercially driven, right? 
Yeah, it's a it's a not for profit project. So we are basically we've been just like renting the whole space for the next ten years, and then we're just subletting it at cost. And so uh, when it's basically nearly fully uh, occupied, then it's it's covering the cost. So yeah, I think the the business value comes, I guess, more from than the interactions between the companies. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, I think it's a really great idea, and um, still we have to move little back in time and uh, you have to tell me a bit more about you as like uh, being a nerd and uh, becoming a nerd. So how did it, how did that go for you? Uh, how did you come into, a, how did you step into AI? I mean, it's kind of a, a very new topic. Uh, like if you look at the latest hype, um, how did you get into that? Yeah, sure. So I think it, it actually started probably in like seventh grade. Uh, I was, I was put into like a, mathematical science like school class and there we were actually forced to like take part in a science competition once a year so we had to do Jugendforscht it's like you know it's a science competition where you have to hand in a project and then it gets graded and you can go on like local and up to national level and I didn't really like it in the beginning but at some point I got very somehow very excited about because I realized I can just like build my own projects there and you know invent stuff and so I ended up building an autonomous um, guitar tuner that tunes your guitar. I built some cleaning robots that would clean your apartment. I developed an operating system for mobile robots. So built a few couple of projects and it was always around, I guess, you know, building smart systems and also at that point involving a lot of hardware. And um, that just really fascinated me to somehow program something that is, that is intelligent. And so that's how I got excited about it. And then um, basically studied computer science, did a PhD in computer vision and deep learning. So went quite deep um, up to the point where I was like, okay, now I'm like too much in the woods in the details. Uh, I'm not excited about writing another paper and improving like a certain metric for uh, for like 1% or so. Uh, so then I said, okay, look, like maybe um, there's there's other ways to to build machine learning applications and and have an impact. And so that's that's when the idea of Neurantix was born. And then you started straight away with that. Um, one more personal question. So uh, still any smart devices at home that uh, are you made more intelligent than there were before? or? So I'm, I'm definitely very much in, in, into smart home. I haven't like built anything myself. Um, so I, I should actually do that. I was always like very excited to get like a Raspberry Pi and like play around with it. I, I think right now I just don't have enough time for this. Um, but yeah, it would be fun. But I'm I'm very much into like you know, like the heating at home that turns on and off and like the lightnings being smart and like, yeah, that's, that's definitely exciting me. So there's always the problem with the wife acceptance factor with, with smart home stuff, right? Yeah, I agree with you. But like, if it works really well, then I think the acceptance factor is not that high. So you just need to make sure everything functions all the time and, and then everybody's happy. <laughs> so, um, how did uh, machine learning and AI developed uh, during your time uh with it uh i think like it was a huge push um how do you see it personally yeah i mean i think it developed a lot so when i when i programmed my first neural network i must have been like 12 or 13 i had to like implement everything myself so i wrote like every single mathematical operation every single like, equation by myself and it didn't really work that well and could also really only solve very simple tasks and then uh, during my phd in like 2013 to 16 things really started to work. So there was like a big breakthrough in like 2011 uh, when the first like computer vision applications started to work and neural networks were actually, um, you know, 
surpassing uh, state-of-the-art results for image classification. And then the time 2013 to 16 was kind of the time where people then started to bring it in all sorts of applications within computer vision, whether it's um, my, my research was a lot on like face recognition, for example, um, but people also brought it into object detection. People also brought it outside of computer vision into language processing. And so I would say 2013 to 16 was a time where, um, yeah, on a lot of tasks, these algorithms were surpassing also human performance. So for example, in, in age estimation, which was one of the areas where I published a couple of papers, uh, which where the task is to estimate the age of a person based on a photo, um, suddenly the algorithms were better than if a human would look at the same image. And then it starts to become very interesting commercially, right? Like, because if you want to sell a product and uh, the algorithm is worse than a human, like nobody cares in many applications. But once you say, hey, look, like this is actually better than if a human would do this task, and people get excited. So I think that was that was an interesting time. And then, um, you know, since then, computer vision has been improving further, but it's just by now it's just working very, very well. Um, and so for any task where you have an image, you need to find something in the image, understand what's going on. It's it's much better already as a human um, for 95% of the tasks, I would say. Um, and so that opens like a ton of applications. Um, now, if you look at like other areas of AI, maybe like in the language processing space, there we've seen the breakthroughs um, more in the last like two years or so. So that has been more recently. Um, with with GPT three and uh, like the, the the model that OpenAI just just published, right? Yeah, exactly. So that that's one of the models. Also, I I just heard that a couple of days ago, actually, um, some some researchers in China published a model that is ten times larger than GPT three. So. There's been like a lot of advancements in language processing. I think the the, the key concept there is that um, previously you always had to train your language model on the specific tasks. So say you want to, I don't know, understand a certain type of document or um, classify reviews. You had to take the neural network, train it on your specific problem, and then it would only be able to to solve that problem. And that's that's the old paradigm. And the new paradigm is you basically just take a lot of text from the internet. Basically, you crawl the entire internet, all the text that's out there, and train the neural network on that. And then that neural network is so powerful that you can apply it for very different tasks. So you could um, use it to classify your reviews. You could also use it to write a speech. You could also use it to um, write a financial report um, or understand a financial report. And even though you've never trained for that specific task, then it's, that's very powerful. And so now people are creating basically these very big generic AI models, um, making them bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you can just use it for, for anything you want. And it's surprising how well this worked. Um, I was actually um, giving a talk last week at a, at a, a Fortune 500 company and I took their AGM speech. Um, and like, firstly, like made a second a version out of it that a second grader could understand. Then I also took some headlines and generated a new AGM speech, which like, was actually very good um, and also asked the, the algorithm to write a summary of it um, and yeah it's just it's nearly pixel perfect it's, it's surprising how, how somehow smart these models are these days okay and if you want to play with gpt3 is, is it already publicly available or is it still invite only and um, somehow not really accessible yeah, there's some there's some restricted access there, but there are also other language models. So this is just one of them. Um, if you want to take the older version or some of the open source versions of it, there there's some some alternatives. Um, um, and people are working on more and more of those. It's just it's very expensive 
to train them. So you might invest like a few million euros to, to train it once because the, you need so much compute power to run it. That's why it's it's not like being like that, you know, there are thousands of versions out there, but certainly a few. And people also in, in, in Europe, actually, and that's also something we push with the German AI Association are um, trying to push for a European version of the model um, that is um, freely accessible for everyone. Okay, because uh, OpenAI um, sounds very open, but uh, also has a commercial or has commercial thoughts behind it, right? Yeah, exactly. I think they've been like more they've been like more open in the past, but they, you know, Microsoft is now getting involved there and investing a lot of money in them, um, and so now now they're getting more and more commercial and becoming more and more part of Microsoft, which changes a bit the way they they're positioning themselves. Okay. And um, are there any other um, examples? I mean, image classification um, is, is obviously um, something you can easily also also try yourself. I mean, in the, in the public clouds, there are typically like services uh, you can use to, to predict age and stuff like that, or um, uh, if there are any nude parts in the image or something like that. Um, and then there's GPT-3 and language processing, Uh, what about other applications? So, for example, predicting time series data um, or re results on the stock market, for example, is there is there any any progress, or is that still a bit bumpy? That's a that's an interesting question. I think the thing is when you have time series data or tabular data, you know, you can think about it as like a spreadsheet of of, of data where you want to uh, predict something, some column. Um, People still use like very traditional methods, um, you know, regressions or support vector machines uh, to make those predictions. More recently, there have been some papers where you actually also use um, neural networks to do the prediction because like in the past, they, they weren't like much better on this than any simple algorithm. But they, yeah, there's been like some progress in the last one or two years and people try to now use these neural networks and it's slightly better. But also the, the thing with tabular data is The, the data is very low dimensional, right? Like if you have, I don't know, like the last, like the, if you if you take your stock price example, if you take the the closing price of the stock market from the last 10 days, um, it's 10 numbers. And sure, you can on those 10 numbers try to predict what, what the stock price is going to be tomorrow, but there's only so much in those 10 numbers um, that even with the most crazy model, you you won't like, you know, create the oracle of, of the stock market. Like you will need much more data. And so, um, that's why usually the constraint is then more on the data side than on, on the on the model side for tabular data. Some other areas where um, I'm very excited about about machine learning is is is, is the space of biology. So um, you know, like biology is being like traditionally a very experiment heavy um, kind of space where people you know sit are in lab coats, um, are in a lab, run like experiments, you know. With pipettes, like just like 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 your high school like chemistry lab, um, and that that has been changing um, quite a lot in the last two three years. So firstly through lab automation, so basically building labs that just run experiments at scale and also do that more cheaply, um, especially also because the DNA sequencing costs have been going down a lot, um, even faster than Moore's law. So you can now basically run much more experiments through robots and also sequence the DNA of, for example, proteins. And then you can actually use machine learning to analyze those. And we have actually also one company working in that space. And so you could, the way you can imagine it is that you 
sequence a protein. So you get this like long list of like letters. It's a bit like text, like in natural language processing. And then you use like similar techniques um, to say, look, like this is not English as a language. This is like a DNA sequence. Let's try to predict how this protein might behave. Um, and then you try to predict it. And if, if you like the behavior, then you run the experiment in the lab and see if it actually behaves that way. Um, and then you iterate it over and again. And so that's a really cool application where somehow you have like physical experiments, robots, um, NLP models, and, and bring that all together. Um, so yeah, we are. I'm, I'm personally very excited about biology of all. There are like tons of applications, and we saw that now with COVID, right? Like in the in the pharma space, there there's it's very interesting um, applications for vaccines or general like, treatments, but also in the biomaterials, like creating new 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 materials. Um, I think that that would be also very cool. And and do you know if, uh, for example, in in uh, mRNA um, development, there has been any any AI um, adoption or 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 application? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, they're also sequencing um, um, the RNA, and then based on that, they're basically um, then also trying to predict um, what kind of experiments they should run so that they optimize them in the right way. And you also use that when you when you, for example, want to see how certain compounds act on certain targets. Um, and you know the shape of of of, of the target in your the human body uh, where that your compound should like bind to. Um, you can like obviously try that out on like mice or humans, which is you know takes time. It's like costly. Um, there is a lot of other factors, or you can basically just like simulate it um, or predict it, um, and so then you can basically run much more targeted experiments. And it's much more likely that they're uh, successful because because basically the option space is so large. There's so many different things you could try out. Um, mm -hmm. In the past, people have just like more randomly kind of run experiments, and with better targeting, you you will be much quicker, much more successful. Okay, so you think that also helped in in the development speed um, in the last year? For sure, yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, what what about like classical? medicine um experiments or like simple things simple i don't know how simple it is like detecti detecting skin cancer that's like one of the uh, uh most known um and obviously i guess there are like thousand companies that do that um uh, using ai is, is is that something that is already solved or is it is it still all experimental is that still I would say from a technical perspective, it's it's close to solved, um, or I would say it's probably solved. Like the thing is, building a simple skin cancer, uh, skin cancer algorithm is a matter of a couple of hours, right? Like you download the data set, you run your standard algorithm, it will perform pretty decently. Now, if you want to make it robust as a medical product, make sure that it can work with different um, lightning conditions, different skin types, you know, that it doesn't make anything stupid, predict anything stupid when you when you show something that is not skin, like making that that robust algorithm is a bit more work and, and, and much more work actually, but you can also do it. Um, I think the bottleneck is often then less on the machine learning side, but more on the, on the commercial product side. Like, you know, assuming you have this, you have built this algorithm um, and it's even certified as a medical product, like who do you sell it to? And how can you make sure that it quickly gets adoption? Do you build a direct to consumer brand? Then you need to acquire customers. Or do you try to collaborate with doctors? Then you need to somehow convince them that it's a good idea to use your algorithm and and they're make sure that they're not that they're not scared of being replaced and that it also fits in their workflow because they already have like 10 existing softwares that are built in like 1993 and so 
there is you know a lot of like legacy IT infrastructure you need to integrate with. Then each country is different. So like all these things are, are I would say like ninety percent of the work um, and of the algorithm, which is. As a researcher, you know, I wish it was the other way around, but it's that's 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 unfortunately the reality in, in many areas of, of AI. So you have to start at the university and convince doctors straight away and uh, <laughs> get them get them started using AI um, like during their their medicine studies, right? Yeah, I think that's Ideally. that's a, that's that's a great idea. I mean, like there's this this I think there's a startup Amboss that helps you to practice for your your medical exams, and they also actually went to market through the students. And I think now they're also being used a lot in hospitals because people got so used to it during their studies. And I think you could actually do something similar for, for this, that you somehow integrate that into, into the university courses. And then people can like, I don't know, get used to it there and realize it's a much better um, solution. The challenge you have to solve is like that a lot of the doctors out there are actually, you know, like the older generation, the ones who run the big centers are not 26. They're usually like, you know, 50 or so. So, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of education you have to do um, so that they're not scared. But once they use it, they love it. That's the interesting part. So once you get them to use it, they're like, oh, wow, this, you know, saves me time. I'm not as scared anymore that I make mistakes. Um, I can make more money. Um, the algorithms find stuff that I would have missed. And so we actually, for example, one of our medical imaging companies found a couple of cancers that doctors would have missed. And that's that's great, right? Like you're actually like, saving lives. So um you need those success moments and then, then they start trusting the algorithms. It's a bit like when you have a new employee, um, you know, in the beginning, you also kind of double check every little step, wanting to make sure that the person does everything correct and kind of seeing what they can do well and what they can't do well. And in the end, you have a similar process when you, when you have deploy an AI. Um, people are very skeptical at the beginning, they check everything. And then at some point, they start trusting more and more and realize, oh, wow, this actually works really well. And so... That's that's at least like my mental model how 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 to get things in the real world. Yeah, I think uh, people have to see it as somehow like a self extension, right? Um, like just becoming the better self using using machine learning and AI. Um, uh, but uh, rarely um, people do that because they they don't they 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 feel that it's uh, somehow attacking their job, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're they're scared, right? They're scared that they're being replaced. But the truth is, in many, especially in many of these critical AI applications, like in healthcare, it's not about replacing; it's about augmenting. It's about making sure you make less mistakes, making sure you're quicker, uh, making sure um, it's more cost efficient. And those, it's not like we replace it. It's not even legally allowed um, by like mm -hmm. law. Like there's the Arztvorbehalt, which is you know one of these very big like laws, at least in Germany, which basically says that. It needs to be doctor who, who makes the final decision. And that's kind of at the core of our whole like medical law here. So um, yeah, it's, it's hard to change. It's kind of the Grundgesetz of, of medicine. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the edge cloud movement. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, the New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Uh, but but still, I mean, uh, laws get changed every once in a while. And if you, let's, let's, let's pick another example. Um, 
let's let's pick cars and taxis. Um, so if you if you look at, at at smart cars today, or even even Teslas, then you have that full self driving, and it's still behaving stupidly. Um, you it's it's in a way an augmentation, right? It's it's um, somehow built into your your driving process and your driving experience. And at a certain time, I'm quite convinced that it will be that good. Um, I mean, if you listen to Elon Musk, then it will be this year. <laughs> like at the end of this year, my my car will will drive on its own and um, and earn money for me. Um, even if it's not, um, it it will develop, right? And it will um, potentially let the taxi driver disappear at a certain time. Yeah, no, I think it will happen at some point and it will, you know, will be like a gradual process. It will not be from like one day to the other, but yeah, probably in like 10 years um, in like many cities or countryside, cars will drive autonomously. I'm, I'm very convinced by that. Because in the end, like, what do we do? We sit in a car, we look out there, we have two eyes, we see what's going on, we process it, then we take a decision, we steer left or right, we brake, we accelerate. I mean, it's somewhat complex, but also somehow like very easy, right? Like you just need to make sure you kind of stay on the street. You don't drive into something. You kind of check where the other cars are going. Like, yeah. like we learned driving in like, I don't know. My, I, I think I took my driving test after like 30 hours of driving. Like it's not that much. Um, and now if you dump like millions of hours of driving into an algorithm, that's, that's a much safer driver than actually I am because that has seen so much more like weird corner cases, like which I've never seen when they put me in the street. So it's, it's probably much more safe to do this. And, That's also like a big area of like AI development right now, kind of reducing the amount of training data you need so that the algorithm gets intelligent. Because right now we're still dumping like, you know, ton of data into the algorithm, much more than any human would need. And it's somewhat not sensible. If a human can learn it in 30 hours, why should not an algorithm also learn it after seeing only 30 hours of driving? And there's still a big gap, but we are reducing it every year and and people yeah, start to build algorithms they can learn from much less data and get the same performance. That means that one of the key advantages of, of Tesla, that they have so many uh, training material, get uh, less and less uh, uh, worthy over the yeah. time? Or Yeah, I, I, I think like this whole like paradigm of data is the new oil, I completely disagree with. It's like this like sentence like many people say because it sounds smart. And, um, and when people say, look, like we have data and that's why we're such a valuable company. And I think it's complete bullshit because... Sure, it's a head start. Like we, we've probably built the largest data set in medical imaging and breast cancer screening. Sure, that's great for the company. It's a great asset. But like, to be honest, like others could build the same asset as well. Um, it's just a matter of like money and time. Um, and then you get there as well. Um, and that advantage, as you said, like coming back to the, the, what I said previously, is getting smaller and smaller because you can get to the same algorithmic performance today with much less data than like five years ago. And that trend will continue, right? Because the algorithms will get better. So you need even less data. And people also start to work also with less labeled data now. Um, there is a lot of interesting progress there. So that also will, will just you know diminish the, the advantage of, of these data sets. But yeah, still currently Tesla has a lot of data, is collecting that nicely, is working with that nicely. And that, that's a huge competitive advantage still um, towards the, the, the classical car manufacturers. Um, and it's also less on the, I think for cars specifically, like one part is training the algorithm. The other part is also testing the algorithm. And there certainly it helps when you have a lot of data, because even if you now can train it on less data, you can then still run it through like 10 million of, of past hours of past driving and kind of make sure that it never did something stupid. And that's, that's a great way to ensure that whatever you deploy is safe because, um, 
you know, it's 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 in the end always and Tesla had a few of those, right? It, it's in the end always about like single accidents where something very stupid happened that ultimately could create a huge backlash. Um, and so you need to be very careful, even just from a commercial point. But there's always the stupidity of human involved, which is unpredictable, right? <laughs> I mean, well, if people you look try at to the... predict it. People try to people put cars <laughs> in their uh, cameras in the cars and try to figure out like, do people do something stupid? And if they, I don't know, don't sit on the seat, or if they, I don't know, get super drunk, or like these things you can detect. You just need to make a basic build a stupidity detector. Uh, and, but I guess like <laughs> like you you then have like ten class labels of like, okay, is the person drunk? Is the person in the right seat? Um, do they have their eyes closed? I don't know, like whatever. And then there's probably still like five more stupid things you could have never imagined somebody doing. Um, I don't know, somebody suddenly sitting on the roof or, um, <laughs> you know, whatever, putting a dog there. So, <laughs> yeah, humankind is, is still very creative there, I think. <laughs> I think Tesla already has it, like partly at least, right? Uh, I think they predict how the driver is behaving and so on and have a camera inside. And yeah, yeah and I think also some of the traditional car manufacturers even do it um, when they when they check whether you're still like focused on the street. Um, there's also some, some, some applications. Okay, do you, do you think like um, that Germany can still catch up um, on, in that space? I'm an optimist, so I hope so, yes. Um, It's challenging. Yeah, it's very challenging. I think it's, and it's less. It's just the mindset, right? Like these these German car manufacturers, they come from like I don't know. We outsource everything to our suppliers, and we just like squeeze them very hard with our procurement, and then we assemble everything together, and um, then we have a great brand. And now it's about like building a software company that is structured very different, that has very different development cycles, much more agile, um, big focus on on data and machine learning. And that's, that's a very different mindset. And so now you need to reorg these companies. Um, and, you know, Volkswagen, for example, with their new like uh, software org are trying this by like basically creating completely new units that are outside of the main business so that they can get that culture and also attract that talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talent, getting, getting talent um, is, is uh, something, something hard these, these days. Right. But, but um, I think on, on that end, we're kind of, on a good path in Germany that we at least um, have have a good education system and so on, right? Yeah, no, we have, I mean, in terms of machine learning research and, and academia, we are, we are on the same level as, as all the big unit schools and companies in the US. Um, we have great talent, we have some great machine learning professors, like everything that is happening, for example, in, in the Cyber Valley around Max Planck and Tübingen is great. Um, there's a lot in, in Munich, around TU Munich, uh, here in Berlin, Uh, we have the TU Berlin and, and Bifold, the new like research center they're building. So there's a few like great spots with great researchers. The, the challenge is that many of those, especially the students then, um, also leave, leave, leave Germany, right? Or, or join some, some big US tech companies. And so we need to create more opportunities for them here uh, locally. Um, but it's, it's good. Like I think, especially also Berlin, it's so English speaking by now. Immigration is much easier than the US. And so, I think it's been getting better and better and people love moving here. And so I think we can, we can kind of bring the critical mass of AI talent here, not just from Germany, but also from, from outside. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of people who want to return also from the US, right? Like lots of great researchers who are from Europe originally that now with, you know, like everything that is happening in the US are like, hey, we'd love to come back. It's just like very hard to find a job that is comparable to what I've been doing in the Valley before. Okay, and there we come to your elevator pitch, but maybe we uh, step 
or go one step back uh, back to trends. Uh, you mentioned uh, machine learning ops, ML ops, as as one of the the trends that you currently see, and I can like somehow feel that there's a need of um, um, building simple tech to uh, essentially. Uh, go from from like the initial test uh, to the really deployed model. Uh, what, what what do you do you see there as 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 tools and and trends available on the market? Um, and how quickly do do the clouds progress? For example. Yeah. No. Sure. I think this is this is a huge topic because also even uh, when I when I when I look back for within the Marantics times like four years ago, so we would write you know we would build everything ourselves like every every model we would um, define ourselves in, in TensorFlow. Um, we would build our own system that would help us to configure experiments. And basically, when we train a machine learning model, make sure that six months later, we can reproduce it and know what was happened, like what data was used, what algorithm was used, what machines were used, what was the result, so that also if a different employee tries to reproduce it, it works. And for that, we had to build our own systems. And so we had not only to maintain our machine learning models, but we had also to maintain our um, software around that, that basically maintains the models. And that's a lot of parts you then have to build yourself. And I think in the last couple of years, we realized look, like it's actually independent whether you're in like breast cancer or autonomous driving, a lot of these challenges are the same. It's about like, A, it's about scale scalability. How can you basically easily train something on one machine versus on a thousand machines? How can you deploy to 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 Google Cloud or to AWS and you know make that seamless also run stuff locally um, how can you make stuff reproducible how can you maintain your machine learning models in production like if you deploy a model and um, suddenly you realize uh, it starts to predict something stupid because something has changed in the real in the real world the data you get in or a sensor broke that you realize that quickly so there's a lot of these parts that are always the same independently of, of what your specific problem is and so many companies saw that as an opportunity now to to build these so so-called MLOps tools that kind of help you do this automatically. And um, so certainly the big cloud providers, um, for example, AWS or SageMaker, are like heavily pushing um, to 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 provide that already on the cloud, so that when you go on on AWS, you not only um, can buy compute, but you can already. Um, get access to an API that can do standard image classification, that can do standard text processing. Um, even for biotech, for example, there's there's some stuff on, on the big cloud provider. So they're trying to move more and more up the stack. Um, and that way also lock you even more in, right? Because once, if you just use compute on AWS, it's very easy to switch um, to, to GCP. Now, if you use also all their like software on top, it gets harder and harder, more convenient, convenient stay. And, and that's where they make a lot of money. And I think from our side, I mean, you're pretty cloud provider independent. We actually have, have stuff on, on all the big cloud providers and can also like easily switch. Um, we use we use Kubernetes just to like, you know, scale and orchestrate our clusters and make that easy um, accessible. And then on the MLOps side, we've been using Salden, uh, which is a MLOps framework um, that builds on top of um, yeah, Kubernetes and basically helps us to to handle the entire ML lifecycle of, of these models. So both from training as well as from deployment. And and what if you had like a team uh, with, let's say, less than 20 employees? Um, I mean, just as being a startup, where would you start? Uh, would you would you always use Kubernetes and and, and that that uh, tool chain? Or would you potentially also go with something which has more lock-in 
and which cloud provider would you would you pick or would you pick something independent is there anything you can like any any anything you can recommend for younger companies yeah i think it's a good question kubernetes we also only started using maybe like one and a half years ago um so in in the early days you would also just spin up machines uh, individually and that was super easy um because kubernetes comes with some overhead in maintaining a kubernetes cluster um, and the learning curve yeah <laughs> and the learning, there's a learning curve and so um you need a certain size you need in the end like you know one or two people that are somewhat responsible for for maintaining this and and making sure everybody knows how to use it um so i wouldn't recommend that for you know your first you know couple of employees um Generally, I think if it depends, it depends what you want to do. If you're if you want to do a lot of prediction that are relatively low value, um, you need to be careful in using the cloud providers because you you might end up paying a ton for these predictions. But if your predictions are relatively high value, so if you I don't know, like you pay say like a cent on 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 Google for for a prediction for the API, and you can charge like two euros, then you know it's probably totally fine to use their their services. If if you make only three cents and you pay a cent, then you should probably from day one think about like setting up your own prediction model. So I would I would look at this from a like very economic argument and, and then make a decision. And but so to prototype stuff, you can just use stuff out of the box, um, you know, and, and just run it from the cloud device or or just use some open source, right? Like you could also just use some open source, like you rarely need to reinvent the wheel here. But then you all have the total cost of ownership again, and so on. If you if you use open source, so uh, is then like Google Cloud or AWS? Is does it does it move the needle? Um, is there is there like a large difference between them? Mm. AWS has still like much more adoption, like more broadly speaking. So you can just you realize that the products are a bit more mature, maybe. Um, But also there's a bit more legacy, whereas like Google, like I think a lot of the things they, they started a bit later. So they just taught them from scratch. And especially when GCP started to take off, um, you know, they immediately focused on a lot of ML features in the cloud, whereas like AWS came a bit later there. But we use both. I, I would say we have not a strong preference. We've been also using Azure um, because for some of, especially when it's towards corporates, um, they often already use use Azure, like they have a bit more adoption there. So um From a business perspective, sometimes that is a good idea. Um, yeah, we've, we are, we are pretty agnostic. And we also try to stay agnostic. I mean, this is in the end also what, what GaiaX, you know, the big European project on, on the European cloud is pushing, that you somewhere don't get locked in with one of the vendors and you could still switch. Even though you might not end up switching because it's still like an overhead, that you always keep that in mind that, that, that you can still um, because you never know what happens. And when you scale, things might get super expensive. So it gives you also leverage towards the cloud provider. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot. So could you tell us a bit more about, about Merantix and the, the startups that you that you uh, invented uh, or came up with? Sure. Yeah, so we have, we've started four product companies so far. So the first one is Vara. And they're a company in the breast cancer diagnostic space. So helping basically doctors um, in breast cancer screening to make less mistakes. Right now, actually 25% of the cancers that could have been seen are missed. Um, so there's a lot to improve. Um, they are in the market by now with a medical product, um, already running in probably more than 10% of the screening centers in Germany and also in some other European countries. So there we really went from building an algorithm, um, certifying it, putting into a workflow solution for doctors and, and getting that on the market. Now we are actually very much focused on Yeah, getting in as many screening centers live as possible. 
So that's the first company. Then there's Zia Search, they're a data management company in the autonomous driving space. So kind of what we talked about before, that basically in autonomous driving, you manage petabytes of data from cars. And it's not like you can easily look through that anymore and work with that. It's a bit like when you go on a holiday and you take like 100,000 photos, like it's a pain to like sort them and figure out what are actually the 10 relevant ones you want to print out and send to your grandma. Um, and so um, it's a similar kind of platform but for autonomous driving data. So you know what to keep, what to throw away, uh, where are some interesting things happening. Um, you can easily pull data out of with certain characteristics so you can improve or, or test your algorithms. Um, and then more recently, we started two companies, um, Cambrium in the synthetic biology space. So they're, they're optimizing uh, proteins um, and uh, focusing on the bioeconomy. So not pharma, but um, basically, the first use case is, is cosmetics, actually. So we are producing a, a bio-based collagen um, that is used in cosmetics and um, has very good properties. And so, yeah, we're right now actually setting up our, our automated lab right outside of Berlin. Um, and yeah, there will be like robots running the experiments and then we use the data to, to optimize the proteins. And then we have Causa. Um, they're in the space of business intelligence. Um, so there we actually work with tabular data. Um, the, the thing is when you, the, the idea is that now that all many companies have like pretty good data warehouses and, you know, all their, their business data, like relatively good, well stored, especially like scale ups. Um, you can, you can now view the data, you can use like Tableau or so and look at it, but the analytics step of understanding what is really going on is still done by a human. So for example, I don't know, like some KPI goes down, I don't know, the average basket size in an e-commerce store. And, you know, the manager would go to the business analyst and be like, hey, look, explain why this has happened, right? And then you go there and you're like, okay, what has changed over time? Are there certain segments that have changed? Are there certain like weird outliers in the data? And the idea is that the analysis is always the same there. It's always conceptually the same. And so we're basically trying to build a platform that is automating this business analyst so that the manager can just say, look, I care about this KPI. Uh, and then... The algorithm will automatically tell you, hey, here are five reasons why why this could have happened, and, and then you can work with that. And yeah, they just, just actually launched their public public beta um, uh, last week, so um, you should you should try it out. It's it's pretty cool. It's pretty fascinating. And then lastly, um, there's one company that's um, you know all these four first product companies I just mentioned. They're all um, you know venture funded. We've invested. Um, we can invest up to three million euros in those companies with our fund. Um, also majority owned by the team. And then we have one other company, Mirantix Labs, that is a bit different. That's 100% daughter of Mirantix. That is our consulting solutions provider. So there we build customized machine learning solutions, sometimes for Fortune 500 companies, sometimes for startups, SMEs, pretty industry agnostic. Um, that itself is a, you know, a very growing, growing, um, almost profitable business, um, but it's also informing a bit our venture building because if you know three, four customers are all having the same problem, you know, maybe there's an opportunity not just build it four times the same time, like do four projects, but rather say, look, let's let's build a product and, and sell it to them. And it's cheaper and better for, for the customers as well. So there's a lot of like synergies between kind of Mirantix Labs and, and, and the venture building part. Okay, interesting. I like the 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 log analysis or BI uh, company. I just I just ran across like a a use case where um, I was just looking at at stack driver logs in the Google Cloud and just saw like something that like a pattern that happens every few seconds and that I expect the the, the cloud providers to to have something um, 
comparable in a few years where you actually, which, which actually helps you to, to, to repair your stuff, to get your business optimized and so on. I, I think like even at a certain time, um, they can hopefully like pretty much help you with your business, right? Yeah, and it will happen, right? Because like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, we also already used, or even five years ago, we already used a lot of software, but much less tools than now. And also those tools will generate much less data. And now you have all these different tools in your stack that generate data all the time. And there's no way like a human can look at all this and understand what's going on. And, you know, maybe I know about like a certain tool, but then there's another engineer who knows about another tool. And so the knowledge is also very siloed in organization. And Sometimes you need to pull data from a few different tools to understand what is the real problem. And um, so we just believe, yeah, it shouldn't be humans doing that. There should be a machine that is constantly looking at the data and, and giving you these insights. Okay. Okay. Um, so that was very nice so far. Um, I'd like it to also um, that we oriented the podcast around like practical um, application of AI and, and, and you gave so good examples. Um, If I would ask you for three recommendations for CTOs that just want to want to want to get 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 it up and running, I mean it's a very generic question, I know. Um, but what would be your recommendation um, if I just want to play, for example, with with language models? Um, what what would you recommend me? Yeah, I think I think first of all, um, Selden is great. So if you need an MLOps platform, I would would highly recommend them. We are super happy with them. Um, secondly. Um, Hugging Face is this is like model library where you can use like a lot of machine learning models that you can easily try out. So that's that's very easy um, and it's worth checking out. Um, and then I think the third thing, um, yeah, just just continue reading papers, sign up for like newsletters, um, and you know see what happens at the big machine learning conferences. Follow your favorite researchers because the field is still moving very quick and it's it's very easy to to miss a trend. And so. Um, yeah, even though right now, like a lot I have to deal with is like, you know, business and hiring and fundraising, I still try to find at least like an hour a week or two, uh, where I just kind of check out what, what's happening in latest research. Because yeah, if you, if you, if you don't do that for like a year or two, you can easily fall behind and then set, uh, like invest in the wrong technology. Mm. And what would be the, the conferences to, to look at? Um, so the biggest one is Neurips. um, um, it's the um, big neural network conference. Uh, it happens once a year, usually towards the end of the year. Um, that's generic machine learning, so it's language and, and computer vision, and also more classical machine learning. Um, and then for computer vision specifically, there's CVPR um, that usually happens around the summer. Um, that is that's you know all, all, all computer vision. Okay, and anything in in Germany? Um, Not sure. <laughs> I, I think we usually go to the international ones. And I mean, also all the German researchers published there. Um, it's not, it's, it's, it's very, it's relatively uncommon for, for these um, conferences to be regional. I mean, they're usually global because the community is so global. So you have people from Europe, US, Asia coming there. Um, I think it's good to be there. I mean, there are some local smaller conferences, but like, yeah, that's maybe just to, to meet some local people. Um, the, the research really happens at the big conferences. But it's then very researched focus. Is there anything application focused? Yeah, it's actually um, it has shifted. So these company con conferences have been traditionally very research focused. Um, but more recently, firstly, the big tech companies started to publish a lot there. So it's anyways not just universities anymore, but also Google, DeepMind, you know, um, Microsoft, and so on publishing there. And secondly, um, 
You have also a lot of startups there who at the end want to try to recruit there and or present their products. Maybe because also if you have an ML, MLOps product, right, it's a, it's a great place to there to to basically sell your your products to machine learning researchers and practitioners also from large companies. So the the audience has very much shifted from like you know ninety percent researchers and ten percent from companies to like probably 30 percent researchers from universities and 70 percent from companies so um there are still basically long story short there's still the right place to go to also when you're when you're a company okay uh, so um, i know got a little surprise for you rasmus and um i just looked up on, on github and found like a secret and unreleased experimental version of tensorflow um that came with um, a time machine library Uh, included uh, that does not only predict but also allows you to travel back in time and uh, i wrote like a little python script which which allows us to travel back in the early days when you got started with with uh, in product management at google um, i think it was in 2012 um, and uh, we can now watch yourself for for a second um, you're writing some code i guess um, and and observe you and you now have the chance to actually manipulate time and um, whisper something into young Rasmus ears? Uh, what what would it be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I would have like used deep learning earlier in my PhD. So uh, the first one and a half years, I was actually using more classical machine learning and everybody in my lab was super skeptical about, um, you know, deep learning. And I was then, okay, I guess they're right. Because um, everybody was like, oh, was this new thing? You know, I'm not sure if it's going to work. And um It took me like one and a half years or so to then say, look, like, I'm just going to try it out. And then, you know, immediately it was like clear it works so, so well. Um, so I think if I would have like known that earlier, I would have probably, um, you know, had one less year of like, um, yeah, quite painful PhD experience. Okay. So your recommendation would be to uh, dump scikit-learn and start with, with deep learning straight away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so Rasmus, uh, thanks a lot for the podcast. It was very helpful um, to, to understand where, where we are um, these days. Um, next time we potentially talk about politics a bit more because you're also like deeply involved in uh, KI Bundesverband and uh, do a lot there. Uh, so that's what we, what we potentially do next time. But I like it to be um, very much practical and, and application heavy. Uh, thanks a lot, Rasmus, and uh, hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Tobias, for the invitation. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks.